0: Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative's podcast. I'm Oliver Hartrich, I'm the Executive Director of the Initiative, and we're joined today by our Chair and Senior Fellow, Roger Partridge. Welcome, Roger. Hello, Oliver. We have to talk about fair pay agreements. You wrote a report about that, that's about two years ago, and we have to talk about it now because the government is now dead keen on introducing them, as they told us at the end of last week. Can you tell us first, what are fair
1: pay agreements? Well, they sound like a nice idea. Nobody could disagree with the idea that workers' pay should be fair, nor could they disagree that the terms and conditions negotiated between employers and employees should involve agreement. The problem with fair pay agreements is that they're, they're not really agreements at all. They're a compulsory system for collective bargaining that will apply across entire industries, and occupations. So instead of a workplace agreeing terms and conditions suitable for their workplace with their employees, they'll be negotiated across entire sectors or entire industries with unions representing employees and businesses forced to be represented by business
0: organisations. Let's talk a bit of history then because the current system goes back to 1991 and what the government is introducing or about to be introducing will take us back to the 1970s and 80s, is that right?
1: That's right. Uh, until the labour market reforms brought about by the Employment Contracts Act in 1991 and then uh, continued with the Employment Relations Act in 2000. So before the last 30 years, New Zealand's industrial relations landscape was uh, involved not voluntary discussions between firms and work, their workers, But a system of industrial awards set across uh, entire occupations and it involved a mechanism for setting terms and conditions and for setting uh, um, salary increases that would apply across entire sectors. So if
0: employees are not negotiating directly with their employers, that means there's a role for unions.
1: That's right. Uh, the, The winners in these fair pay agreement um, systems are the unions. What we've learned over the last 30 years is that when employees, workers are given a choice, they mostly prefer to negotiate directly with their employers themselves. Only 16% of New Zealand's workforce is represented by unions. Under fair pay agreements, all that will change. Unions will be thrust back into the centre stage they will have the core role negotiating terms and conditions for all workers in New Zealand. So incidentally, why was the old system abolished in 1991? What, what we saw in the 1970s and 80s is the system of industrial awards falling apart. Uh, New Zealand had very high levels of discontent in the workforce. So strikes. With lots of strikes. Um, they were a significant feature of the industrial relations landscape in the 70s and 80s. We had stagnant wages. Uh, and, and we had, um, uh, yes, yeah, stagnant wages, and and, and, and we saw um, a system that was not working either for employees uh, or for their employers. Um, and, and if you step back and look at the bigger picture, what you saw in the 1970s and 80s is workers' share of GDP steadily declining. And that
0: process stopped from 1991?
1: It did. Since the 1991 reforms... Uh, uh, Union, compulsory unionism was abolished, the system of industrial awards was set aside, and over the last 30 years, what we've seen is workers' share of GDP, uh, employees' share of GDP, st- uh, steadily trending upwards. There have, there have been a lot of other positive attributes of l- labour market uh, performance over the last 30 years as well. Uh, New Zealand has, over those 30 years, had one of the highest labour market participation rates in the OECD. We've had the third highest rate of jobs growth in the OECD. We've had much lower levels of unemployment and we've had real wages steadily tracking productivity growth over 30 years, to the extent that the OECD has singled out New Zealand as a country whose labour markets have been working really well.
0: New Zealand was relatively unique with its labour market regulations post-1991 because in many other industrialised countries, uh, you still have collective bargaining and, and award systems. I mean, Australia is a case in point, but many European countries as well. What's their experience with the labour markets?
1: Well, well what we see um, with with collective bargaining elsewhere in the world is labour market outcomes that are not as good as New Zealand's. So, on average, higher levels of unemployment. On average, salaries not tracking productivity growth. You and would s-
0: expect the opposite. W- w- well, if, if, uh, if strong unions negotiate... You would expect them to get better results for the
1: members, yes. but it doesn't happen in practice. No, that's right. But, but the problem with sector... Of course, we do have collective bargaining in, in New Zealand, but it's it's not at the sector or industry level. It doesn't apply to all sales representatives. There's 100,000 of them in New Zealand. It's uh, at the firm level. It, it applies at the firm level. And, and so what we've seen over the last decade is many countries, including European countries, with... With, with, with the sorts of system the government is proposing we now adopt in New Zealand, moving in the opposite direction and adopting aspects of New Zealand's flexible labour markets that have been so successful over the last 30 years. So we see France under President Macron moving in uh, labour market regulations so that wages are set at the firm level, not at the sector level. Still collective bargaining, but not industry-wide, collective bargaining and the reason for that is that our system has been proven to work better um, both for firms and most importantly for the workers themselves.
0: I think we've seen um, similar developments in Germany as well. So in Germany I think there is the option now for firms to opt out of collective industry-wide agreements and um, definitely the trend I think internationally has been going in New Zealand's direction.
1: That's right and you can see the common sense for that, because not every workplace is the same as every other workplace. And you can see why firms might want to negotiate specific arrangements, um, whether whether it relates to um, shift hours or overtime rates, or the terms on which pay rises are given. You can see firms and their employees wanting to, to negotiate specific terms and conditions that are appropriate for their own workplace. So the international trends
0: are actually working towards New Zealand's system. The system, as you point out, uh, has de- delivered reasonably well for New Zealand over the last 30 years. So why change it now?
1: Well, the, the, the problem that uh, New Zealand's system over the last 30 years has delivered up, or, or the parties that have been affected adversely by the system, are the unions.
0: Um, and fa- union membership is down to I think sixteen percent or something like
1: y- yes, that. Yes, it is very low. It was it was it was compulsory before nineteen ninety one. Sixteen percent. It's not too different from the OECD average. But most workers can't see a reason to be a member of a union, uh, and and that's not good for unions. Um, fair pay agreements will put unions right into the centre of New Zealand industrial relations landscape once again. So, so they are the winners. So let's talk about the um, government's proposal
0: in, in a bit more detail. Initially, we thought this might cover one or two industries after the new fair pay agreements get introduced, just as a trial. But I think that's, that's off the table now. It's basically the whole of the economy that the government's now looking at.
1: That's right. And um, there are... A lot of potential losers with fair pay agreements, and so I think the business community breathed something of a sigh of relief back in um, in the first year of the last coalition government, when the prime minister said that there would only be one or two in the first term of the government. They didn't get fi- the fair pay agreements across the line in their first term. There was an awful lot of opposition to them with within people within government, within government, um, but also from outside of government as well, including the opposition uh, uh, that, that that came about as a result of our research, which revealed how well the current settings had been working for, uh, had been working for workers for employees. Um, Yes, the the, the proposal that's been approved by Cabinet is uh, is holus bolus. It's open slather. Um, One of the particularly unattractive features of the fair pay agreement proposals is that this compulsory process that applies across a whole industry or a whole sector or or a whole um, uh, um, uh, job category can be triggered by a tiny minority of workers. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So in practice,
0: how would that actually work? Well... Say for all salespeople in New Zealand, um, how many people would have to um, trigger this?
1: The proposal is that the the lesser of 10% of the workers in an industry or occupation or a thousand workers can trigger a, a, a fair pay agreement negotiation or or, or, or or process. It's 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 not right to call it a negotiation because it will end up in an arbitrated outcome with a with a with, with a judge making a decision about what the rates of pay will be at the end of the process. So it's not a negotiation. So what would be
0: um, a big industry in New Zealand that you could imagine would go for that straight away?
1: Uh, the, that I, well, the, the the ones where it would have the most undemocratic effect would be the largest uh, industries, and the, and the the, the the there are two uh, over hundred thousand uh, dollars, over hundred thousand workers, um, uh, and that the, the the most significant one is salespeople.
0: Salespeople. So more than a hundred thousand people, it takes a thousand people only, and, and and the unions will probably find a thousand unionists within this industry. So it takes about just one percent of the workforce to trigger this for all hundred percent of employees.
1: That's right. So w- so one percent of workers can force the other ninety nine percent into a negotiation where the ninety nine percent aren't r- are represented not by choice, but by u- by unions negotiating on their behalf in a compulsory manner. So it, it, can can also, uh, it
0: can also force the employers, of course onto the negotiating table, even if they don't want to be part of that agreement. That's
1: exactly right. And not just not just the employers of the thousand workers, but the employers of um, every worker in that occupation. See, I found that
0: part of the proposal quite curious because coming from Germany, I'm, I'm used to some of this collective industry-wide bargaining. That's been a feature of the German system for decades. But even in Germany, you couldn't force employers to the table. If they don't want to, they can just abstain from being part of an employer's organization and they simply wouldn't be covered.
1: No, and I think there is more water to go under the bridge here because the International Labour Organization Convention on, um, on uh, Negotiating Employment Arrangements requires that they be voluntary. Uh, so without doubt, the proposals for both parties. For both parties. So without doubt, the proposals here breach the ILO Convention to which New Zealand is a signatory. New Zealand wasn't a signatory to it before 1991. We couldn't be because unionism and industrial awards were compulsory. We have been over the last 30 years. And, and in all likelihood, um, we'll see a challenge before the ILO to what's proposed here, because it's highly undemocratic, uh, highly prescriptive, uh, and, and doesn't embody the concept of voluntary negotiation enshrined in the treaty.
0: Would there be any legal consequences if the ILO found us in breach of the treaty?
1: Well, New Zealand would be in breach of its uh, international obligations under the Convention. And what are the penalties for that? Uh, I think New Zealand would want to find a way of avoiding being in breach. Uh, so that's why I say there's plenty of water on this score still to go under the bridge. Well, the
0: other interesting question will be whether there will be a peak employer organisation willing to be forced onto the negotiating table.
1: Yes, um, um, we understand Business New Zealand hasn't ever agreed to perform that role. Even though the Cabinet paper claims it has? That's right. Um, uh, So more water to go under the bridge there too.
0: Now in the last parliamentary term there was a lot of opposition, as you say, from the official opposition but also from within government and from business. What kind of opposition can we expect now to the fair pay agreements in the current form?
1: Well, I th- I expect there'll be a lot of concern from um, across the business community about being forced back into effectively the industrial awards straitjacket, which uh, the New Zealand economy escaped from uh, in 1991. Uh, work, the workforce and and employers have got used to negotiating terms and conditions that are appropriate to their industry. Uh, to, their, to, to their particular workplace. Um, that They'll not look forward to having industry-wide um, conditions imposed on them. And there are very good reasons for that, and there are good reasons for um, all New Zealanders to be concerned about the, this proposal, because our research found that there are many losers um, with a system like this. Uh, workers themselves, the unemployed, consumers, and overall productivity growth is likely to be threatened or ha- adversely affected by fair pay agreements, which will have a an adverse effect on New Zealanders' well-being. So
0: if the government goes ahead and introduces fair pay agreements now, what would you expect the results to be?
1: Well, we'll get legislation um, um, emerging um, within the next um, few months. Perhaps it'll be before the end of the year. Perhaps it'll be early in the new year it'll have to go through a select pro- committee process, so there'll be another round of consultation. Uh, um, th- th- there'll be a chance to to, to mould the legislation then. Um, if it's passed in 2022, uh, then we will see, uh, I think, union-initiated um, fair pay agreements across a range of industries.
0: And the outcomes for New Zealand, for the New Zealand economy?
1: If fair pay agreement negotiations are successful in negotiating up um, salaries and wages, um, that'll be good for workers who keep their jobs, at least it'll be good for them in the short term. Uh, Firms that can't recoup the cost of higher wages uh, will either have to substitute um, capital for labour, which will see a reduction in labour market participation, or they'll go out of business, which will also see a reduction in the size of the workforce. So this is one of the key threats of fair pay agreements. If you force wages up beyond labour productivity, uh, then firms will hire fewer workers, they won't hire the workers whose new wage levels aren't supported by their level of productivity. So this will hurt um, unskilled and vulnerable workers, Maori and Pacifica, and women and and school leavers disproportionately. And this concern has been identified both by Treasury and the Ministry for Business Innovation and Employment, and also by the research that we revealed in our report. So, so the risk with fair pay agreements is we see an adverse effect on employment levels. Uh, we there's also a risk that we will see prices go up. So with higher wage levels, uh, um, we'll see firms want that can wanting to raise their prices. So consumers will be adversely affected. And ultimately there'll be an adverse effect on well-being. We'll see both lower levels of, of employment than we otherwise would, higher levels of unemployment, especially amongst vulnerable workers, higher prices for consumers, which will affect the um, um uh, low income households disproportionately and an adverse effect on on wellbeing. I also think we'll see an increase in in court disputes and industrial strife because there are many areas for uncertainty, uh, which union gets to represent, which group of workers, where are the limits? Um, of uh, of an occupation or industry which workers are covered by a fair pay agreement. So what we saw before 1991 were screeds of demarcation disputes uh, and they disrupted um, business activity. Notoriously in Wellington, the uh, what was then called the BNZ building, it later became the State Insurance Building, saw a dispute with Uh, with boilermakers alleging that they were the only ones entitled to do the welding and and, and a demarcation dispute held up that project and stopped buildings being built of steel in New Zealand for more than 20 years. So it's that kind of disruption that we'll see once fair pay agreements are implemented and rolled out across the economy.
0: And if we're putting fair pay agreements into the broader economic context, we are still in the process of recovering from COVID. We are probably in a recession now, The government has introduced uh, new sick day allowances for all workers in New Zealand. They have also increased the minimum wage. And to top it all up, we'll get another public holiday from next year. So government has already significantly increased the cost of doing business. And so you are saying the fair pay agreements are really the icing on that cake. It will become increasingly expensive to operate in New Zealand if you're a business.
1: That's right. Uh, What we'll see is... Uh, if fair pay agreements achieve their aim, is higher um, um, c- costs of labour for firms, mm. less flexibility. So as, as, as firms and workers try to grapple with the disruption caused by the future of work, we'll have an old-fashioned labour market system that was in place in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, creating rigidities, which will cause disruption in the workplace and ultimately harm both firms and
0: workers. Interestingly, perhaps with the new system being introduced now, we wouldn't have seen the positive employment outcomes in this COVID crisis perhaps.
1: Yes, it's it's hard to say that, but I think what we've seen with the good employment outcomes is a symptom of labour market settings that have been working very well. Of course, they also have something to do with the with the effectiveness of the government's uh, wage subsidy during uh, the COVID lockdown. But it's especially in a crisis when you need a flexible system. That's exactly right. And what 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 the the, the world saw in the aftermath of the GFC is those economies with the most flexible labour markets performed the best in terms of um, both uh, employment levels and 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 wage levels and with new zealand being one of the standouts well thank you roger i think we'll watch um, future developments on the
0: fair pay agreements with great interest and great concern in the meantime i'll just recommend to all our listeners to look at your report published in 2019 with bryce wilkinson it's called work in progress by fair pay agreements would be bad for labor it's a small l labor because it's a in our opinion that it is really a bad idea for ordinary employees in most companies we'll watch this with great interest thank you for, for your time and thank you all for listening thank you